Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Empower App Show. My name is Leo Dion. I run Bright Digit here in Michigan, specializing in Swift development in the Apple space, whether that's iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch, and server as well. We have Peter Witham back on to do the second part of this two-parter. Hey, Peter. All right, cool. Let's talk about March updates. We kind of had a mini Christmas again. I don't know what you want to call it. (laughs) Easter? Yeah. With all these updates the last week or so, uh, despite, you know, the world being under the, despite the current trauma right now caused by this virus. So we still have some updates that came out this week. Uh, OS updates, Xcode updates, hardware updates. I'll start from the most boring and go to the most exciting because I feel like that way we could save the best for the last. Anything you noticed with any of the OSs? I just know things work, so that's good. But other than that, we'll talk about iPad OS, obviously, in a little bit. That was seems like the big one. And then as far as hardware updates, it was the new Mac Mini. Have you ever owned a Mac Mini? Um, yes. In fact, for the longest time in my day job, we actually used Mac Minis as um, our machines. CIs? Yeah. So Yeah, that makes the most sense. It's just such a perfect device for that. And I feel that's where it's really found its home. Yeah, it's great for that. That's exactly what it's it's for. The the one thing that I think is interesting about the updated ones that they brought out is the, you know, the doubling of the storage. Yes, that was the only update really on the Mac Mini. Is that right? Yeah, and I think for once it's like yes, that's exactly what it needed. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like the only thing that annoys me about the Mac Mini is like, do you think like a developer would could like own a Mac Mini? as their machine like could you get one that's powerful enough compared to like say like if you maxed out a mac mini i don't think it would get anywhere near close to like an ipad pro or a imac pro i agree that's the one thing that troubles me is like i can go in and i can like max it out and i still end up like not having a machine as powerful as i'd like it to be yeah i I think there's a you know a couple of things that hold the mac mini back and you know maybe unfairly but it's almost like the budget kind of developer machine, but even then it really isn't because... No, it's not. Not at all. You know, it's like if I was to... For what I would pay for a Mac Mini, I could get a MacBook Air and probably still get a better end of the deal out of it. Right. And the, the thing, like, I feel like the Mac Mini, they should, like, make it a little bit more robust so it fills in the gap of, like, the desktop computer that doesn't have a monitor attached. Uh, between, you know, the Mac mini should be the one that goes all the way to like maxing out to like basically 10 grand, you know, you should be able to do that because there's nothing in between besides the iMac, unfortunately. Right. You know, I think the Mac mini and I, I've heard other people say this and and I think they're right. The Mac mini sits in a really weird spot where it's like a mega wonderful kind of Apple TV and a not so great Mac. <laughs> right. And it's a really difficult spot, but I think Apple could so easily solve this by just turning it into essentially the Mac server. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, because I think like we've all said, you know, certainly most developers I talk to, you know, and as we were just talking about, the Mac mini is such a wonderful, 
you know, turn it on and forget it build machine. Or if you're a studio, you know, it's wonderful for doing your encoding or your, you know, doing your rendering or whatever you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Because you don't need a Mac Pro for that. You just simply don't. And you don't need to monitor it constantly when you can just remote in. Absolutely. And there are some tasks as well, you know, no matter what machine you have will always take time. And so, you know, it doesn't matter how much money you throw at it, it will still take time. So why not save yourself the heartache? Like if I had to pick between a, you know, really beautiful screen or, you know, and a Mac mini or, you know, not so great middle range iMac, I'm going to want the beautiful screen and I'll settle for a Mac mini, you know. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, the Mac mini more and more is becoming one of those where does it still fit in problems. All right, let's talk about the fun one. Oh, no, wait, the MacBook Air. Do you own a MacBook Air? Let's get that out of the way. Yeah, so I don't now. However, um, the first Mac laptop I ever owned was a MacBook Air. Okay. And even now... You know, now I've got the 16-inch, you know, wonderful MacBook Pro. But I will say my MacBook Air, I think, will always be the machine that I love the most. Why is that? I think it's the combination of how just, you know, wonderfully compact it is to carry around. And the fact that I could sit with it on my lap for hours and use it or anywhere and use it. And the battery life was great. It had enough power for what I needed. You know, sometimes it's kind of like a car. You find that one that's just the right one for you. And I think the MacBook Air was that for me. Surprisingly, you can upgrade the memory to 16 gigs on these. That's crazy. Because, you know, MacBook Pro, like I couldn't do that with mine a few years ago. Yeah, you know, that's the crazy part is in no way does a MacBook Air feel like a compromise anymore. And now it's got the retina screens as well, of course, which I think we got in the previous version, if I remember rightly. So you've got those beautiful screens. There's just nothing about it that's not to love as far as I'm concerned. And now that it's got the... How is it as a developer machine? You know, I never had a problem with it. You know, of course, it wasn't the quickest thing on the planet, but to me, it was acceptable. Like compile times in Xcode, the only time it suffered, I would say, is where I think, and this was back in 2012 when I had mine, I think it was, or 2011, you know, the graphics chips weren't all that. So pushing graphics, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, going in, that's a problem. That makes total sense. Yeah, I'm confident that's not a problem anymore now because, you know, those have come such a long way as well. All right, let's talk about the fun one. iPad Pro, let's finally do it. What's your thoughts on the iPad Pro? You're selling all your Macs and you're going to switch completely to iPad only, correct? If someone's willing to help make up the difference that I need to make up, you know, the missing money for, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess part of that question would have to be, you know, the other part we'll talk about, which is the stand, which we'll get to. But, you know, as I've said to you before, my iPad Pro, I absolutely love it. I have last year's model. I don't plan to get this year's version, but... That said, I wouldn't rule it out either because, you know, like having the LiDAR camera and and just, you know, that new A12, they called it the A12Z, I think it was. It's a Z or X. Oh, maybe it's X. Yeah, I can't remember. They always add a suffix to whatever the previous. Pro- they got to put something, right. right? Yeah. I love the iPad Pro. I think it's such a beautiful piece of hardware. 
and the size doesn't bother me. I have the the larger one. If I didn't have the one that I've got now, yeah, I'd probably get this year's, I have to admit. Z, you're right. It is Z. Huh. It is the Z? Okay. Bionic Z, I think, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, somebody somewhere is charging them by the letter to to put those things on the machine, I'm telling you. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I'm slightly tempted, but honestly, I would save the money and buy like a used third gen, whatever the one that had the face ID they switch over to Face ID. I probably because to me, like that's the bigger thing. So I have a second gen iPad Pro. Oh yes, twelve point nine. I wanted to try the iPad style, right? The iPad lifestyle, so to speak. So I bought the twenty seventeen iPad, and my big complaint was the size of the screen. Mm-hmm. Like that was it. Like I just want more screen, and then I ended up finding like this is gonna sound weird. I probably mentioned this on the show before, but I found second gen iPad Pro at a pawn shop for a ridiculous price. And this was through Facebook uh, Marketplace. And I was just like, this, I want this. It was so ridiculously cheap. I don't even want to mention how much I spent on it. And I was just like, that that's a reasonable price. I will buy that. It's an awesome iPad. Um, But like having a home button, like... I'm still surprised that there's iPhone users that that either a miss having a home button or like are afraid of losing the home button. But on the iPad, like the home button just doesn't make any sense, especially with a display that large. So like one thing is to just get rid of the stupid home button so that I can like just look at the thing to get it booted up, so to speak. That's like the one feature that I'd look, like to have and just having more. Well, it wouldn't be more display. It'd be less bezel. That price is crazy, like, to buy a brand new iPad. I just, I couldn't justify that, even with all the uh, cash that I'm not going to be spending on WWDC this year. um, It's not worth it to me. You're right. I think if I had to pick one thing that makes my iPad Pro a daily use machine, it is definitely the facial recognition because... You know, full disclosure, I I hate the on-screen keyboard, but I hate on-screen keyboards on anything. So I use an external keyboard. So to be able to do that, and then, for example, I need to open up one password, and it just happens because of the facial recognition for the login. You know, the face ID, I mean, the, the words game changer get thrown around a lot, but that really is the one for me. If I didn't have that, I couldn't use an iPad every day. No question. But having that so that I can just keep typing, it, oh, it's just wonderful. I mean, I have such love for the Face ID on iPad. Yeah, like I would almost look at getting like a, a refurbished third gen and like saving whatever, 400 bucks <laughs> by getting a used one. And I've had good luck with used devices before. So, yeah. What do you like about the iPad over using your Mac? Is it just the light? of having to carry out such a small device, such a smaller device, so to speak, or thinner device? That is definitely um, a big thing for me. Surprisingly, one that I didn't think, you know, I knew it would be good, but I didn't really appreciate until I started doing it, is using it for things like books. I don't know why, but for all the screens that I have in front of me connected to my Mac, I never feel comfortable reading books on those screens, but yet I can happily sit for hours with my iPad. So for example, if I'm sitting here and I'm programming and I've got a tech book open, 
it'll be open on my iPad next to me. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, it is such a natural e-reader for me. And because of, you know, everything else that it can do, I can jump out of that book and go to a website or, you know, I've even done it where I'll have, you know, I always use my iPad mostly in a landscape mode. So on one side of the screen, I would have, say, a book open and, you know, Swift Playground on the other side, and I'll be working through code examples. It just doesn't feel natural to me to be reading a book on a computer screen. I don't know why. It's just maybe just one of those holdovers from, you know, my generation. I don't know. <laughs> when you're saying book, you mean like you have it on a stand by the monitor, not like necessarily reading like your favorite fiction book or magazine or news. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Actually, you know, it's funny because that now you mention it, that circles back to Apple services because, you know, I was trying the news service for a while with the magazines. And it was fantastic for that, too, because it just felt natural. Okay. And I think that, you know, certainly the size and the thinness of the iPad come into play with that a lot. And definitely for me, you know, the pencil is a big thing as well. My love for the iPad is how thin and simple it is which I think is also its problem in a lot of ways, because like we said, you get to about like 60% or 50% of the way there. And then you're like, crap, I need my Mac. But like if I am writing or doing email, I would prefer to have my iPad uh, in those cases, as opposed to my MacBook, because my MacBook pro is just so complicated. uh, And it's such a temptation to like, we said, open up Xcode or for instance, like start, working on some code or or something like that. Like, I don't want to do that. When I want to blog, I want to focus on that and that specifically or, or some piece of media that I'm working on. And that's what I like about the iPad Pro. Hey, for this week, rather than doing a typical sponsor, I wanted to let you know about Indie Support Weeks. Indie Support Weeks is a open two-week effort aimed at helping indie developers within the Apple developer community, especially those financially impacted by the current global COVID-19 pandemic. And I think that this is a great idea put up by John Sundell to help a lot of the folks who build some really great apps that I think could use some of your help by at least checking out some of these apps, if not purchasing them. A few of the apps that I really wanted to let you know about include Home Inventory, by Diane Hamilton, which is a great Mac app for tracking all your home items. I don't know about you, but if you're doing anything with insurance, this is a really great thing and practice to do to know what you have in your house in case you have a disaster happen. There's a couple other ones. We did that episode with Kaya about push notifications, and there's a great app called Pushever which will help you with that as well and be able to test push notifications. I highly recommend checking that app out if you're doing anything with push notifications. There's also Native Connect, which is a great app for posting your app to the App Store Connect and getting all that stuff set up. If you've done anything with App Store Connect, you know how challenging it can be. So I highly recommend checking out Native Connect And there's another app I recommend for developers called Modules for the Mac, which makes it really easy to visualize and organize modules. I'm going to post a link to these to the show notes. Last but not least is Working Copy by Anders Borum, which is an awesome Git client that I've used hundreds of times. 
works on the iPhone, but it's especially good on the iPad, especially if you have a brand new iPad Pro and do anything in Git. I highly recommend checking working copy out. It's an excellent Git client. So those are some apps. I'll be posting links in the show notes. I highly recommend checking those out. I will also post links to the list of other apps that you should also look at. This is a great way to help a lot of the developers in the community, and these are really solid apps. So please check these out, take some time, and get yourself acquainted with them. I highly recommend them. Thanks again for listening to the show. Now, let's talk about the stand. So they have a new stand out, correct? Yeah. I guess we could start by saying, you know, like we thought the the stand for the Apple Pro screen was overpriced. <laughs> That's uh, nothing compared to this one. <laughs> Imagine if you had to buy wheels for it, though. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's a good... Oh, could you see it now? Just fleets of people dragging their iPads behind them. Like, <laughs> that would be great. $400 for the iPad wheels. Sorry, that's the new standard now with anything that Apple sells that's on wheels. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's it. Yeah, it comes with wheels. <laughs> what do you mean, Apple car? We've got wheels on everything, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, the I see. Apple gets me. They know how to work me. I think because well, they totally do. I mean, I, to their credit, like that's that's their power is they know how to like position themselves in the market. And I mean, this keyboard looks really nice. It totally does. You know, let's go through it real quickly, right? So we've got a keyboard backlit. That's part of the cover. It has the sort of, I guess, the iPad finally got its wish, which is to just sort of float there in front of us. And I don't have to plug it in to, to charge the iPad. I mean, they essentially gave us everything we wanted, but they're making us pay for it. In my case, it would be, you know, 350 for the... Jesus. Yeah, I know. Uh, but the problem is that it's so easy to talk yourself into it because firstly, they were smart. They realized... Okay, if you buy one of the new iPads and one of these stands, that's expensive. So if we make it available to the people that have last year's iPad as well, mm, okay, they don't have to get the iPad, which is exactly where I'm sitting. And then you realize, like, that's how they're going to get me. You know, because of the USB-C connect in the hinge, it's a dock, right? Let's be honest. It's a dock, kind of. That's exactly what it is, yeah. Yeah. and so. They're like, hey, we're going to give it all to you in one package and you're going to pay like it is three different pieces of hardware. So is that, that's that part, the, the circle there? That's a USB-C port? Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So I assume it charges through those three connectors on the back and it's also where the magnets are. I, I assume that's how... Does it have to be in landscape mode? So this is the other interesting thing is every picture I've seen is landscape mode. And this is... Maybe one of the things, too, that I'm expecting Apple to push this year is, okay, maybe Apple, again, has finally realized everybody uses their iPads in landscape mode. So it depends on what mode I'm in. Like, uh, we'll go to, like, I'll just talk about my setup. But, like, I buy an iMac. iMac usually comes with a Magic Keyboard. That's what I end up using with my iPad is the iMac Magic Keyboard. And then I have, like, basically USB-plugged mechanical keyboard that you probably can hear when I'm 
recording right now. So uh, that's my setup. So then I take the magic keyboard. I put that into the, uh, I think I sent you a link in the notes to the little folio thing. And then that case for the keyboard also doubles as a stand for the iPad. And then I put that like a little briefcase with the iPad pro 12.9 inch. And then what I do find interesting is that their stands uh, for the magic keyboard actually have the iPad slightly higher, which makes total sense. Um, Cause that's what I like in a good iPad stand is one that's actually a little bit raised. So that's actually eye level instead of me hunched up like I am with like a MacBook, for instance. Um, so I really like that. But then sometimes if I'm doing text, like writing a blog post, I usually have it in portrait mode. I'll have something up like Ulysses or bear or notes and I'll be doing notes on that like an outline or blogging or whatever. And I have it in portrait mode because I just like it like that. And then maybe I'll split the screen and have like a, like a Safari window open on the side as well. So my stands are a lot cheaper. And then also like an actual, I don't know how much like an actual Mac magic keyboard is, but I can't imagine it being anywhere. Like it's got to be 129 or 130, right? Like it can't be that much. So you could like get an actual magic keyboard and you could get, stand off of Amazon and save yourself a lot of money <laughs> instead of spending all the money on, uh, on this, like it's, it looks really nice. And I, unless you, you know, if you do use the USB C that much, it makes sense. But like, otherwise I don't know if it's worth it. Like geez, oh, Pete's. Yeah. See, and you're absolutely right because you know, the two different setups that I use and I should say, you know, when I'm reading books and that I do have it a lot of the time in, in sort of the upright view, just that one page view. But the rest of the time I'm using it landscape. And the ways that I do it is I have one of the adjustable stands that was in one of the links you sent. So I can have any viewing angle that I need. It lifts it up slightly and I do the same thing. I actually use the magic keyboard that came with my iMac. And so I do it that way. Now, when I'm not doing that, I actually have one of the bridge keyboards I don't know if you've seen those ones where it essentially turns it into a laptop. You put it in the hinge on the back and, uh, you know, it has the keyboard on the front and essentially opens and closes like a clamshell. Okay, nice. Yeah, and the beauty of it is because it's not a full case like, say, for example, the Logitech ones, which is what I used to use, but you would have to put the iPad in like a full-blown case for the back. Well, with the bridge one, you don't have to do that because it's just a little bracket on the bottom that holds it in place. Okay. So as soon as I take it out of that keyboard, I'm straight back to kind of the native iPad without any extra width or anything like that. That's how I use mine. So interestingly, I feel like the new Apple keyboard is kind of a take on the bridge, you know, with that that wonderful Apple twist where they, let's be honest, they always make things slightly better, right? You know? Yeah, totally. And that's, see, that's again where they get me here because they've done this and it's like, oh yeah, you've taken everything I love and you've sort of made it into one thing. And, you know, that's part of the problem. But I don't want to give up my bridge keyboard because it essentially is everything that the Apple one is. My complaint, with Apple keyboards in the past has been that they're not backlit and they've solved that. (laughs) So this one is backlit. Yeah. The bridge one that I, you know, for example, is an adjustable backlight as well. So it's great. I can use it anywhere, anytime. 
it's essentially like the thickness of the iPad Pro. So when you close it up, you've doubled the thickness of the iPad, but it's not heavy enough that, for example, you couldn't sit anywhere with it on your lap. Okay, that makes sense. And it's also uh, metal as well. So it can take a, you know, it doesn't just tip over or anything like that. That actually is my problem on occasion with that 12.9. Is like if I put it in portrait mode, there's been times where it has flipped over. And I've had to be careful with that because it's it's kind of, it's a bit heavy. I almost need to like put like weights on the stand or something. So it's a little bit more stable. Right, right. Yeah, I've done that before. I had one of the, uh, an old connector one that I put it in that I was so sad because it was kind of one of my favorite little docks to put it in and it had the lightning connector and it charged it and everything. But then when the iPad Pros came out, they were so big that it just fell over and it was like, I got to let it go. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was getting too expensive. <laughs> yeah, a $30 stand for a $1,000 iPad Pro. You do the math. Yeah, that keeps falling over. Yeah, you're like, there's something wrong here. I Time to spend another $30. <laughs> So we talked about the stand. There is something else on that stand we didn't talk about and a big change with iPadOS 13.4. They have surfaced the iPad Pro. Can I say that? Is that fair? Yeah, that's how I'm describing it. Well, what do you think of cursor support? Let's. Uh, I should be specific to that. So there's a trackpad on the new Magic Keyboard that you can buy with the iPad Pro, which also works like you said, with the previous generation iPad Pro, you've played around a little bit with cursor support. You had a video that came out showing how it works, right? Yes. What um, What's your thoughts? I think they nailed it. Okay. I've tried so hard to find something about it that I could knock Apple on because, you know, every time I'm always like, Apple, you did this wonderful thing, but, and this time I can't find the but. So many people have waited so long for this. And now that Apple has done it, and in true fashion, they've done it the Apple way. And I've been using it the past few days, and it's just so natural. So explain to me what you're gaining out of that that you didn't have in with touch, so to speak. Sure. So I will start by saying that I I feel it's a contradiction to what the iPad was supposed to be. And maybe that's why Apple have given it to us, but I'm not sure that they're happy about it. (laughs) Because for me, I'm one of those weird people and, and everybody makes fun of me and they're right to do so. I love my iPad but I'm one of those weird, like obsessive compulsive people that I, I can't, as soon as I see a smudge on the screen, I like, I got to clean my iPad, <laughs> you know, for a device that's very, that's specifically designed for me to be touching all the time. It's almost like, well, why do you have one of these? <laughs> so by giving me cursor support with a mouse or a touchpad, they've enabled me to not touch my iPad, <laughs> which is not like, I totally understand now where you're coming from. Like we talked about this a while ago, but like, I don't know if like necessarily the trackpad or having like cursor support is necessarily the optimal thing, but I would have just preferred better, more robust keyboard controls. Like I would love to be able to do what some folks can do when they're using something like Vim when I'm using the iPad to where I just like everything is naturally on the keyboard and I don't have to lift my finger to be that kind of power user would be awesome. And um, we talked about it, but like a lot of that is 
developer support for keyboard is not as robust as we'd like it to be. Right. And I think that is something else. You know, not only did we get cursor support, but there has been a big shift in keyboard support as well. So I'm hoping that, you know, your wish is going to come true. But as with so many things, it's going to be dependent on third-party developers to embrace it. Right. Which goes back to, does Apple incentivize third-party developers to build robust apps for the iPad and all that? Like, we can open that whole can of worms. Yeah, because like when it comes to any sort of the cursor, it's interesting. We've had these devices for like 100 years, typewriters, whatever. The mouse has been around, what, 40, 50 years so it's like, this is t- tried and true stuff. Like, this has worked. And in the last 12 years, we've seen this shift towards touch, touch, touch. And it's like, like you said, that annoys me as well. Like, the smears on my iPad, it, I totally get it. Like, I feel the same way. And like, just going back to what we had said about Face ID, like, it seems weird for me that I have to reach out and I have to push this button on this iPad in order to open it up. Like, why can't it just like with face ID, I don't have to reach out the whole reaching out thing. Just, it feels weird. And it's strange to me, like the whole, you know, there are people who use other operating systems we should mention. And those people very naturally will switch between using a mouse and using the touchscreen at the same time. I find that interesting because like, to me, it's like, I either want to use one or the other. Like I either want to not touch the screen and use the keyboard and mouse or trackpad or touch the screen and use the onboard keyboard and scroll with my finger. It'll be interesting to see how this really changes everything. Well, so let me ask you this, because I know how many times I've done it. How many times have you gone and reached out and tapped your MacBook Pro screen to then stop and go, oh, yeah, that's right. (laughs) It's happened a few times, especially after a long stint of using the iPad Pro with the keyboard. Right. And it's funny because, you know, in some ways, I feel like this, what we've been given on the iPad is exactly what Apple didn't want to give us and said we didn't need. You know, so for example, I believe they're right and they're wrong. Because they would say, nobody wants to reach up and touch your laptop screen. But yet, that's exactly what you've just done with the iPad. Here, Okay, here, go, let's go the other way. What can you do with an iPhone to make it more robust without having to touch it? Because, or even like the Apple Watch. Like, touch has, I think touch is a great idea, but I don't think it's the be-all, end-all when it comes to user interfaces. I feel like in 20 years, we'll see some other paradigms. Because, like... Touch, especially with the Apple Watch, if I'm holding something in my hand, I can't do anything with it. And that's where I have to bring Siri in or something like that. Or if you're driving or whatever, there's a hundred situations where touch is not the best way to do things regardless. So I almost feel like we've kind of reached a point with touch to where we've seen its limitations. Does that make sense? Oh, yes. No, absolutely. And I I sort of feel that Apple maybe and maybe just as an industry in general, everybody believed voice control would be better than it is right now. Yes. And therefore, you know, maybe Siri was really intended to be the big play that never really quite came to fruition. Maybe it's technology implementation. I don't know which one. But so it's kind of, well, in the meantime, we've got, we're stuck with touch. 
So let's just make it better while we try to get Siri to work right. Do you think that voice controls are going to continue to improve or do you think they've hit a wall? I think they'll continue to improve. And I think that, you know, arguably part of that is me is hoping that they do because I'm now so used to doing basic things with voice control that I would love to be able to just switch over completely. It could also be a generational thing too. With my kids, just hearing my three-year-old tell my watch to turn off the lights is hilarious. And he thinks it's the funniest thing in the world, even though he can barely talk. But no, he talks very well. He's just, he's, he's, he talks like a three-year-old. Um, and it's just hilarious to hear him talk to Siri. And uh, he think he just loves having that power. And it's like, I'm wondering if like, for instance, with younger maybe more like teenagers are more used to using touch devices and I just think folks like us who use keyboards and mouse mice are a little bit old fashioned, just like maybe the previous generation that didn't have a GUI and use everything in a, you know, monochrome monitor thought, you know, using a GUI and using a mouse and a keyboard was just ridiculous. So I think you're right. And I think that you've made a good point with the generations because I feel like with the technology moving as fast as it does now, we're almost moving, you know, through these phases quicker than we're having generations. So yeah, the touch generation, the voice control, the keyboard, they're all moving so fast that almost, you know, by default, everybody's behind the curve. Yeah, agreed. And I was thinking about this earlier on when I was thinking about like, you know, the LiDAR camera and that on the iPad and on the iPhone. You know, and I started to think, is one of the reasons Apple's not done like AR glasses or something that they're hoping they can use like 3D scanning in cameras so that we don't need gloves and glasses? Explain that a little bit more. Like right now, if you think like augmented reality and and you have to wear glasses or a headset or something like that, and then you have these controllers that you put on your hands to you know, move things around in the 3D space. Well, what if somebody masters the 3D camera technology enough that they can see my hand on a normal camera in the device in 3D space and just translate that into the movement for augmented reality? Does that make sense? So like have VR that impersonates AR? Yeah, yeah. So I don't need to wear the glove because the camera's recognizing my hand as the glove. Right, And I think that makes total sense because I think that's where machine learning is moving is like replacing a lot of like, you know, going back to like eye tracking, for instance, to where you can control your computer or your iPhone with your eye and you're not or your iPad and you're not putting a bunch of smudges on the screen all the time, you know, and I think or the watch or whatever. And I think that's a big part of the equation. I think AR glasses are only a part of it. Yeah, I mean, that may be the next thing that we have by way of input, you know, as opposed to touch or speech or something like that. I feel like the industry is moving quick enough that it seems possible. You know, maybe not on a mainstream, but you got to believe that somebody in a lab somewhere is trying to figure it out, you know. Just to closing out the discussion about the cursor, you, I listened to your episode where you talked about it. Did it feel natural to use the cursor on the iPad, even though it, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, when it gets to, like, a button, it tries to, like, self-correct itself so that you're, you don't have to be, like, pixel precise in order to tap a button? Correct. Were you comfortable with that? You know, it's interesting. At first, 
you know, it was one of those like, hmm, this is a bit weird. But after it's like snapping, right? Yeah, exactly. But after about five minutes, it just felt very natural. And then I also discovered later on, you can go into the settings and turn that off so that it actually would stay as the cursor and it wouldn't snap and change. So you would use it exactly like you would on a desktop, you know, where you would just click. Okay. So you can turn it off. But I found that it's useful, like if you think of, you know, like the tabbed control, for example. So if I move up to a tabbed control, it very quickly felt natural that, oh, if I now just move the mouse left and right, I'm essentially tabbing through each of the sections. So it very quickly became natural. And I tried it with a mouse. And then I tried it with my uh, second gen, I think it's the, yeah, the latest generation touchpad because it doesn't work properly with the first, what did they call it? The magic touchpad or whatever it is. You know, the first generation ones where you put the batteries in, it doesn't work with. But with a touchpad, it feels very natural indeed. I changed mine so that, you know, by default, you have to, you know, like on the laptops, you have to sort of push and click. You can change it so that you just tap the touchpad like you would. So you would move the cursor by dragging your finger and then just tap without actually having to push down for the click. And then once you do that, it feels exactly like a laptop. Now, the one thing I will say for me that has been the immediate game changer, I was never really comfortable with the way that an iOS 13 and 12 where you would select, say, text with your finger, that that newer method. Yeah. Yeah, that just never felt good. I feel like text selection is still a pain. So, you know, the good news is uh, that was one of the things I immediately tried, and you can just click and select like you do on a desktop. Now, have they improved the text selection on a with a finger? You know, it's funny because now that I can do it that way, I've not gone back and tried it again with the finger. I should because I'd be curious to see if they improved it. And, you know, part of my problem with that was, and I don't know if it's because I'm left-handed, but the very thing that I want to select, I've just put my hand in front of and I can't see it. You know, so it solved that problem. It goes back to issues with... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I would have to go back and try it and see if they've changed it. I didn't see anything mentioning any improvement there. So I'm thinking that probably touch input is the same. Now, uh, before we close out, what is LiDAR and what is the big improvement there? I am by no means an expert and I only know what I read, but I've seen over the today a couple of good examples where people were, I think they were using infrared cameras where they could actually see the, like the LiDAR beams. I guess they're called beams. And what it does, it projects out, you know, very much like the face ID, right? It projects out and maps the area to build this 3D representation and understanding of what's in front of the camera. And then it uses that to evaluate depth, for example. You know, like the previous generations of iPhones and that, they got very clever with the software for taking pictures to read the depth and that kind of thing. So it's kind of like the next level of that. Okay. So it's probably something we'll see in the iPhone 12 then pretty easily. I, I would think so. I was watching a video earlier where they were showing this. It was a software company. I'll, I'll see if I can find it because I don't remember where where I saw it now. But they were, had this infrared camera showing the beams and they were moving it around in a kitchen. 
And it was so it was mapping out a grids on the 3D space on the cabinets. Mm-hmm. And as they moved the device, it was remapping those grids in real time. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that's next level AR right there. Right. Okay. You know, yeah. And I'll see if I can find that because that's when it hit home. I get it. I understand why LIDAR is a big thing. Cool. Anything else you wanted to talk about before we close out? No, I think that's got it. I think there's just been so much this month to be excited about. Yes. It's crazy. Besides coronavirus, there's other things going on. (laughs) Yeah. Who knew there was something else going on too? Yeah. And we got to stay home and appreciate it all. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you? Uh, You can find me. uh, I have two places. I have peterwidham.com is kind of my home of everything. But I I guess I'm probably better known to this kind of audience at compileswift.com, where I write about Swift and videos and all that kind of thing. Um, On Twitter, of course, at compileswift. And thank you so much for having me back, Leo. It's it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I always feel it's such a great conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. It's really great to have you on and talk about all these topics. I knew we had a lot of stuff to cover, so I really appreciate it. You coming on. People can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. My company is Bright Digit. You can find my Twitter for my company at Bright Digit. I'm also on LinkedIn as well. I would love for folks to share this podcast episode, uh, retweet it, tweet at me, let me know what you think. What are your thoughts on the new products and the new OSs that have come out this week and this month? And also reviews would be super helpful. I'd appreciate that. Thank you again for joining me on this episode and I will talk to you again.